Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Tyvel, and I work with Peace Catalyst in the Washington, D.C. area, um, soon to be in South Africa, though, for a few months. And I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Allie Bernison. Hey, everyone. I'm Allie, and I am with PCI in Los Angeles, California. By the way, if you enjoy the Peace Catalyst podcast, please do us a favor and take some time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps boost our visibility and encourages others to give us a listen. Yeah, thank you all so much. We really appreciate it. Um, And, you know, we're really excited to continue our current series where we're talking about how to become the beloved community and finding restoration and healing in the midst of division. Um, And, you know, this is rooted in the historical origin of the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King Jr. Um, And this concept of beloved community is, is framing our conversations. We're talking to people that we call peace builders who are involving themselves in the ministry of reconciliation, interrupting and challenging oppression, and holding firmly to a vision of justice, restoration, peace, and healing for all members of a community. So this week, we are just so privileged to interview someone named Jamel Armstrong, who is truly nothing less than a changemaker and leader in his church and the wider community of Louisville, Kentucky, faithfully advocating for and working towards the realization of beloved community. A native of Louisville, from a young age, Armstrong observed the ongoing socioeconomic and racial injustices that painted reality for many in his community. His upbringing influenced his passion to pursue the vision of beloved community in Louisville and beyond. Armstrong has years of experience as a youth pastor and currently serves as the lead pastor of New Horizon Baptist Church in Louisville. He's also currently pursuing his Master's of Divinity at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago, Illinois. So this was just, yeah, such an incredible conversation. I loved, loved talking to him. So I'm really excited to get into the episode. Yeah, me too. And right before we get into our conversation, I will just share our peace quote of the week. Um, Thank you, Allie, for providing this. It's from a book called The Post-Black and Post-White Church, Becoming the Beloved Community in a Multi-Ethnic World. And this book is written by Ephraim Smith. It says, The multi-ethnic and missional church points us to a church where God's love rescues people from the matrix and sin of racial division and delivers us into the reconciling spirit of the beloved community. These churches alone may not totally eradicate or dismantle our race-based society, but they will provide the alternative that many of us hunger for. The multi-ethnic and missional church as a Christ-centered community becomes the beloved community that Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of. It indeed becomes the beloved church that forges the beloved community in the world. This is true kingdom advancement. Wow, I love that quote, and it's so fitting for our conversation today with with Pastor Jamel. So thank you, Allie, for pulling that out and sharing it with us. Wow, it's so wonderful having you with us, Jamel, and 
really excited to learn from you in our beloved community series um, and just about the work that you've been doing in Louisville, Kentucky. So um, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit and could you share a bit about um, your connection to Peace Catalyst? Sure. Well, first off, again, thank you guys for having me on. Uh, my name is Jamel Armstrong. Uh, I am the pastor of New Horizon Baptist Church here in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I've been pastoring there for just a little over a year now, um, which has been um, something to discuss uh, for other conversations. But um, yeah, that I am um, the husband of, uh, of a wonderful wife, Rochelle, and three uh, three beautiful children and one amazing new grandson who's 11 months now. So uh, he's the joy um, in these days. Um, that's uh, essentially uh, fundamentally who I am. Um, I connected to Peace Catalyst through um, who's now um, the, I guess, executive director or president, uh, Martin Brooks, um, who is a good friend um, and also a former church member of mine. Um, he attends the church that I used to pastor. And um, so we're pretty good friends. And um, yeah, we've done some conferences and things together and connected uh, in the past. So where um, in, you know, your work right now with New Horizon, um, you said you're the pastor of yes. the church? Uh -huh. Okay. Is is there any other organization or body that you're kind of um, working for, working within? I guess, like, what roles do you occupy? Or I guess, where do you consider yourself kind of in your ministry, um, primarily as a pastor? Or, um, yeah, does that, if that question makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, so starting there, um, within a pastor, um, have largely been influenced uh, by, you know, history um, and people who um, have done grassroots works to uh, build and develop and create community, uh, especially in some of the toughest areas. Um, my grandfather was a church planter, president of the NAACP, um, who uh, actually died after being poisoned uh, in jail uh, in the 60s uh, in Cincinnati. Um, and so we grew up with the stories of our grandfather and other family members who've uh, been boots on the ground, um, doing a lot of work. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Fred Shuttlesworth, who, Shuttlesworth, who was a good friend of Dr. King. Um, much of the work in Birmingham, Alabama um, that he did, Shuttlesworth was one of the persons that he connected with a lot. Uh, Shuttlesworth eventually was run out of Alabama, relocated to Cincinnati, and uh, my grandfather uh, worked close with him. And so uh, growing up, we heard a lot um, about that, those stories from my grandmother about his work and uh, much of that. So it's always been a part of my DNA. My grandfather was a pastor. And so in my mind, um, the work of a pastor um, it coincides with the work of justice and helping to build the beloved community within the church. And so uh, so that's been a part, a big part of where every place that I've served, um, I've intentionally served at places where that's been high uh, up on the priority list. Um, but also currently, I mean, I've done a number of things, which I won't bore you guys with uh, over time, but currently I also work with a small nonprofit called the Center for Neighborhoods. And, uh, and basically what we do is we partner with residents in, especially um, 
disenfranchised communities um, to help them to build or partner with them rather is a better term uh, to build uh, the community in the neighborhood that they hope and know that they can become. And um, so there are a lot of challenges um, that they face and uh, occupy. So uh, we come alongside them uh, to help, you know, build the reality of what they believe their community can become. That's incredible. That's amazing. And um, such a, an incredible legacy that you carry and um, your father that was literally part of the, the civil rights movement. Um, and yeah, I guess in light of that, you know, when you think of beloved community, what comes to mind for you? Um, and what does it mean to be to be working towards that? Gotcha. So um, when I think about the beloved community, I think of it in two ways. Um, you know, studying um, Dr. King um, over the years, um, and there's a beautiful um, biography by Taylor Branch called Parting the Waters um, and America During the King Years. And he does a good job of, um, uh, Taylor Branch does rather, of really unpacking many of these ideas that kind of formed Dr. Cosby, uh, Dr. Cos Dr. Um, King in those early years. Um, and so um, when I think about Beloved Community, that was one of the first places I, you know, unfortunately learned about the Beloved Community or the ideal of it um, later in life. But it's some of those fundamental core values and principles of the Beloved Community, um, peace, justice, equity, inclusion, diversity, um, um, you know, uh, fighting against poverty and homelessness, some of those core values that uh, when Dr. King talked about um, uh, the beloved community, that he hoped that the world would one day be able to uh, actually live up to. Um, now, <clears throat> in saying that, when I first um, heard about the beloved community before I began to do my own personal research to learn more about it, uh, you couldn't have told me that when um, Dr. King was mentioning it, that it was not Dr. King, um, uh, the civil rights activist, but it was Reverend King, the pastor. Um, mm -hmm. I just thought um, that this has to be an idea about what the church is supposed to be. Um, and um, so I carried that with me a while until I finally sat down and really done some uh, some personal research and study um, to discover what, you know, the history behind it, you know, that we all know about. Uh, however, I still carried that with me, um, that when I think about beloved community, the beloved community, yes, I think about some of those core values and principles, but I also think about the church. Uh, because I think if there's ever a place where those values and principles ought to be lived out, uh, it ought to be at the church. And so um, I specifically think about the early church. I uh, think about the early church is the church at its best, the church at its finest hour. And many of those core values was lived out through the early church. It was a diverse church. There were people from all walks of life, um, a number of regions. It was multi-ethnic, multiracial, multicultural. Um, it was inclusive. It was diverse, uh, but also they fought against things like poverty. All the believers had all things in common, and they cared for one another. When there was uh, tensions within the community, they held, they uh, dealt with the tensions and the um, 
uh, many of the disputes within the community just in a healthy way. And, uh, and they did not allow those things to be a division amongst the church, but it was core uh, and what was key to it rather was the fact that they also had, uh, which is what created it, a shared history. And um, that shared history for them was based upon um, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they they believed in that, they held on to that, and that shared history helped them to cultivate that beloved community that, um, you know, we today, you know, essentially are living off of. And so um, when I think about the beloved community, um, more first thing that comes to mind is, man, is the church now. Uh, I believe that our charge is to try to um, continue to live within the legacy of how the church began, the church that Jesus Christ wanted us to be, um, which is a church of inclusion, love, and peace, as opposed to uh, a church of exclusion and hostility towards people uh, who we other at times. So, um, yeah. So, I don't know if I answered all your questions there. Yeah, definitely. That was cool. great. Thank you so much. Cool. Um, and I, I did just want to follow up because you mentioned something about gaining a deeper knowledge or um, of the beloved community or looking back and seeing like, oh, what, what does this actually mean? Or what is, where does this actually come from? And sort of that history. Could you touch on that a little bit more? Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but um, not just understanding it in this kind of one sense that you had, but then when you sort of dug deeper, went back further. Um, gotcha, gotcha. So I, um, um, you know, began as, um, as most of us do today. Um, and I, uh, I contacted my research assistant named Google and, um, and, uh, and I allowed my research assistant to just open some doors for me. And so I, uh, I studied and, um, get, getting this eight, the King Center's information up, um, just to see, cause they have a, um, you know, quite a bit of, um, uh, information on the beloved community um, and churches all over the world who embrace the attitude, uh, especially um, since um, I'd say, I mean, maybe longer, but especially since 2016, uh, there have been a number of churches who have made this commitment to uh, try to figure out what it means to live out those values, reading biographies, which I really believe is key uh, to really understand it because I like to know um, what was know kind of the story behind the story um sometimes we get it secondhand and um sometimes we don't know its beginnings now i'm saying all this because i'm trying to remember the gentleman whom actually the um beloved community originated with because it was not uh dr king's idea it was something that he popularized um and but there was another gentleman who actually coined the phrase and uh, dr king was part of uh, this peace organization this uh, justice organization alongside with him. And so um, I just began eating up uh, a number of materials and books and all that just to better inform me. Uh, because when I found out that um, my initial thoughts about it were flawed, um, uh, that I figured if I'm going to be uh, out here discussing it and, um, and trying to ultimately live up to it, I needed to know where it came from. And so, uh, so I wanted to find its, its beginnings, its genesis, and I'm going to do my best to try to live it out. And, uh, and so uh, what's going to happen is here shortly, randomly, that name is going to come to my mind and I'm going to blurt it out. So just <laughs> warning you guys, that's the way that my mind works. It, it'll come out and be like, that's what I was reaching for. There it is. Yeah. It's I cool. love it. Love it. <laughs> so good. Yeah, 
yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, I, I, yeah, I really appreciate the fact that you are connecting it to the early church and to um, a tradition that, you know, is, is very authentic within the church. Um, Because, you know, I, unless I'm mistaken, I don't think Jesus ever, you know, uses the phrase beloved community, but you're, you're basically making the case that like, it's, it's deeply um, authentic to who, Mm -hmm. who the church is called to be and um, who the church was at its, at its beginning. Um, So kind of moving from abstract to tangible, um, we know that you are located in Louisville. I think you might have grown up there from what I saw online, yeah. but I'm not sure. Um, what When we're thinking about beloved community and um, its connection to confronting injustice and working towards peace, um, what are the areas of injustice that you observed when, um, yeah, while you've lived there and kind of where do you find yourself within within them? Gotcha, gotcha. All right. First off, his name is Josiah Royce. He is the founder <laughs> of the Fellowship of Reconciliation. Yeah, that, that's his name. Yes. So um, it, 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 it hit me. There we go. So had to get that out before I forgot it again. Um, so, yeah, I am. I'm a native here um, at, in Louisville. And I um, so there's some some unique things about Louisville. Uh, we rank in the top 10 um, in, in the U.S. uh, of the most segregated cities and of cities with the most concentrated poverty. Um, And so, and I grew up um, in the area of one of the largest uh, communities of concentrated poverty uh, in the U.S. um, And it's our our West End in Louisville. Louisville has a definitive line of, uh, of separation and segregation that the entire city knows about. And it is a, it's called, it's Ninth Street. And it's literally known as the Ninth Street Divide. Mm-hmm. And um, and when you cross Ninth Street, it is, it is, it is blacker and it is poorer than just about every other neighborhood within, within the city. Um, one of the zip codes within, um, across the 9th Street Divide, 40203, historically is one of the poorest uh, zip codes in the nation. And, um, and so that's just to give you a bit of a framework of where, and where I grew up at. Um, and so um, when you talk about um, not just segregation, but concentrated poverty. There are a lot of ills that come uh, as a result of that. You're talking about, of course, drugs, talking about crime and violence and all those things. What our city has done a poor job at is we have we have labeled the um, the byproduct, the effects of concentrated poverty as though it is an issue of race and class as opposed to an issue of a lack of resources. And um, and what, not just in the U.S., but of any nation in the world, when you have that many poor people uh, in such a large community, um, you have 
everything that happens within that community happening. And so we've done the research wherever you have that many people who are poor, who don't have resources, who um, whose communities have been stripped of every possibility of hope. Um, all the signs, signs are the same. The byproduct is the same. There's, there's crime, there's violence, there's drugs, people trying to uh, do their best to uh, heal or to medicate themselves past the pain, uh, the hopelessness and despair that comes um, and results oftentimes in crime and violence, people trying to uh, find um, whether a tribe or affiliation to hold on to, which results in gangs and the things of the nature. Um, but it happens all over the world. And um, so I grew up in that, in, um, in a place that was um, heavily flooded with drugs, uh, violence and things of that nature, and um, yeah, and 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 a city that has done its best to try to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear um, to the realities that historically, um, what has um, come of that neighborhood was actually something that was created. So. Um, it is um, the neighborhood, although now predominantly black, is was actually historically white. And um, with the expansion of the University of Louisville here and its campus uh, around the same time as white flight happened at that time, uh, many African-Americans were then relocated to this uh, neighborhood. And of course, as a result, as they moved in, many of the whites moved out and the neighborhood transformed over time, uh, which means that jobs and resources and a number of things were also taken from that neighborhood as they relocated. So that's that's kind of where I grew up, how I grew up um, in the space in this city. So um, I, um, I, I recognize um, that Within that, it has, um, because it's so prevalent, like you, you'd almost have to um, be completely ignorant not to see what's taking place. Um, growing up, um, I, I lamented and I despised um, what I saw in, in my neighborhood. And uh, because, of course, due to busing, I was um, bused in middle school and high school um, to one of the most affluent communities uh, in the city. And, um, and for the life of me, again, being young and just not understanding things, I couldn't understand what we did to deserve to have to live like that, that separated us from the way that those who lived in the most in the more affluent communities, what did they do? Why were they better than us that mm. they were able to live this way? And so um, mm. my childhood, just in those thoughts, it's kind of what, you know, the beginnings of my story kind of shaped how I look at things. So, mm. Yeah. If I could ask a follow-up question um, mm -hmm. and thank you for sharing all that. I, um, you kind of spoke to some of the, emotional experience of, um, those, you know, living in poverty or just, you know, um, yeah, who were, who were not members of the more affluent communities, um, the despair, the hopelessness and kind of what behavior that might lead to. I'm curious. Um, and you've shared, you know, kind of where you were, how you, how you felt and how you saw the world. What did you observe, um, from others in the community? It, um, and that's obviously, 
a bit of a, it's kind of difficult because you're speculating or, or maybe, you know, but um, what, is there kind of this feeling of like, well, this is just the way it is. Like, you know, it's, it's just kind of the status quo of Louisville and there's really nothing we can do about it or um, generally, generally, I don't know mm-hmm. if anything comes to mind with that. No, no, absolutely. That, that would be, you know, for the most part accurate. Um, that, that would be the feeling of, of many people. Um, but then also um when it comes to um, people, and this isn't um, just even necessarily a race thing. Um, there are there are many um, African Americans, people of color, who live outside. Well, we currently live outside of the Ninth Street Divide ourselves, but um, but people today uh, from the African American community who won't cross Ninth Street themselves because of the division socioeconomically, and so. Um, many people believe that yeah, either that's the way that it is or uh, that those people there, um, they created that, um, that they don't want anything better for themselves, um, that, you know, when it comes to what we know to be symptomatic of the conditions they believe to be the reason why the conditions exist within themselves. And so uh, they're ignorant to how um, the hopelessness and despair, how it then leads to um, to drugs, to crime and things of that nature. But in their minds, they say, no, man, if you know, if you want better, then you shouldn't do drugs. It shouldn't be crime. And um, and so that is that's, you know, when you get outside of that community, there is uh, there are many people who look at the symptoms and say it's the source of the problem. And um, and that's been much of what uh, I think, you know, a, a lot of what, you know, myself, uh, what we've tried to do as a church uh, throughout the years and uh, even myself and my wife, uh, kind of some of our personal mission is to educate, especially some of our, the, you know, you would think more informed friends and neighbors uh, than when you have conversations across the coffee table or around uh, the dinner table. You you hear these comments and these phrases and you recognize how flawed the thinking of people, how either they are listening to political pundits or allowing the media to, the media, uh, to shape their ideas about what's happening uh, on the ground level in our communities. And so, um, we we began um, trying to work um, to educate uh, people about what's really taking place. So one of the things that we've done, um, uh, and it's we ha- we haven't figured out how to start it up, but uh, restart it. But uh, for about a year, we held this um, these events that we call table talks. And uh, recognizing that oftentimes one of the best places we see this in scripture and in our own relationships that you get to know someone is by sitting around the table and having a deep in conversation with them. So we facilitated that this um, a restaurant that's kind of uh, has a missional purpose, uh, which is across Ninth Street, one of our historic uh, neighborhoods, and um, and we invited started with some of the religious leaders who were from um, you know the suburb suburban parts of our neighborhoods. I'm sorry, my um, MacBook is about to lose its battery, so I'll plug it in. Um, 
And so we invited many pastors and religious leaders, denominational leaders uh, from it's, it's the separation in Louisville is three ways. It's east, south, west. Uh, west is considered black and poor. Uh, east is considered white and affluent. South is considered basically working class. And um, and so we um, we um, which is a whole nother thing right there to think that a city can be defined that easily. Right. Um, but we, we'd invite uh, a lot of those from the east to come down and sit at the tables with those from the west. And we gave you know, some historical uh, lessons about things, um, both based rooted in scripture, but also we brought some scholars um, who uh, educated uh, everybody on what's going on. One of them was, uh, we had a conversation about mass incarceration. I have a friend, Dominique Gilliard, who wrote a book uh, on mass incarceration. So we invited Dominique, Dominique down and um, he did a beautiful presentation uh, and which goes back to the roots of mass incarceration all the way back to slavery, Jim Crow, and many of the lynchings that took place. And um, our hope was that we knew that there were some stories that people were telling themselves about um, whatever the issue is, mass incarceration, um, you know, violence. Uh, my wife is, uh, she's a consultant um, and she does a number of things. And so she did, uh, she, for corporate world, she did, uh, she has a session on, um, uh, on hidden bias. And, um, and so she did an entire workshop on hidden bias and was helping to show people that they have biases, even us as Christians who think that we do not. We, we were forced to sit around the table and discover uh, that we looked at people differently uh, based upon um, either the skin, the color of their skin or where they lived at. And so um, the, the hope was that we could, you know, like Saul, help the scales to fall off people's eyes. Uh, because what we want to do is get beyond the labels to see people in their full humanity. And so this is this is the idea of the beloved community, right? That it is not about whatever labels that we ascribe to people. It is not that they are black, they're white, red, or brown. It is not that they are poor or homeless. It is not that they are straight or gay. None of those labels uh, are important, nor should they be prevalent. What's most, impro- most important is that people were created in the image of God. And we've got to get to the point where that's how we start looking at people, even within their religious affiliation. Those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ must learn to love people regardless of what God they bow down to. We were called to love. And so we were trying to challenge the church uh, through some healthy conversations and dialogue to move beyond um, what uh, oftentimes the stench of white supremacy and patriarchy um, has placed upon the faith that we love so dearly. That is so powerful. I thank you so much for sharing all of that. And it's just... Yeah, what you just shared is so, it's really like hitting me <laughs> um, in a deep place. And um, yeah, you have such great insight on, on beloved community, of course. And um, I think it's interesting because what you're talking about with this sort of racial and socioeconomic segregation in Louisville is something that exists in cities across the U.S. Like it's prevalent. I mean, even here in D.C., it's like, it's split up into wards and it's like, Mm -hmm. well, don't go to that ward, you know, that's the bad ward and things like that. Um, So thank you so much for, yeah, enlightening us about that and the importance of that, that history. 
I, I love the idea of gathering around a table and having conversations, um, but, and maybe listening more, um, first, listening first and kind of, um, yeah, seeking understanding and education, um, on a particular topic. I just, I just think there is such value in sitting across from someone who comes from a different perspective and, um, yeah, all taking in the same information and then kind of unpacking it together. Um, yes. Yeah, so I, I, I just love love that. And I, I love what you're saying too about the focus on humanity as opposed to these different labels or identifiers because at the end of the day, like we all, all are created in the image of God and like you said, we're called to love. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so powerful. And mm-hmm. um, going back to, you know, this idea that Louisville was a locus among others, of the long-awaited um, racial reckoning in that began to occur in the wake of the pandemic um, with the murder of George Floyd and countless others and um, the rise of BLM activism in spring 2020 and with Breonna Taylor's murder being in Louisville. Could you speak to what you observed happening in your community and in the country at that time? Yeah, so... Louisville, because of the nature of the Breonna Taylor case, um, what happened here was really a microcosm of what we saw nationally. Um, and and I think what's happening locally is also, it's, it's still the same, um, that there were some things that we all saw and witnessed that for the first time, it was impossible to deny uh, the realities of it. And so it kind of reminds me, um, going back to the book, Parting the Waters, one of the things that it talks about is um, one of the reasons why Dr. King wanted to go to Birmingham um, was because he knew that the media was going to be there. And he knew Bull Connor was going to violently oppose um, their efforts in Birmingham. And so he went there intentionally knowing that there was going to be violence, but he needed the nation to see that what they had been talking about, what they had been sharing um, from stages and pulpits all over the world was absolutely true. And the world would not know it until the world saw it. Um, so when we watched George Floyd's murder, um, you know, there's no denial there. And, and now we can say, hey, you know, let me tell you that, you know, my first interaction with the cop, um, you know, was 10 years old going into a Burger King. And uh, this towering figure, probably 6566, walks out with his partner and to three 10 and 11 year old little boys who were just going in to get some fries or something. He introduces himself by saying, do you know who I am? And we're like, no, sir, who are you? And his response was, they call me Big Gun. Now, that was not an introduction. That was a threat. I didn't understand Mm -hmm. as a 10-year-old, but I knew what he was letting me know is that I'm not someone to be trifled with. That when we go home and we tell... um, uh, my older cousin, hey, man, this guy we met, and he said his name was Big Gun. He said, ask about him. 
And uh, my cousin says, if you ever see him anywhere else, you go the other way. We tell those stories and, mm-hmm. and historically people are like, uh, you know, you're exaggerating. But then when you see a cop unmoved and unbothered by a man crying for his dear life and for his mother, we're like, yeah, the stories that we've been saying all these years are absolutely true. Mm. And um, and so, you know, of course here, then you know, we we hear the stories of what happened with Breonna Taylor, we're grieving it and the people are responding, but the same thing that we see within the world are the, the nation was, was still true here. Um, people were concerned about structures rather than lives. You know, this is this is the outrage. Oh, you know, buildings, glass. That's you know, that's like no, those things they have insurance, and and the glass guy was there the very next day replacing glass. We're concerned about structures and 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 buildings and the appearance of perfection of exceptionalism rather than really doing something to deal with the systemic issues that we are facing within this nation. And so here and nationally, I think that to my earlier point, the scales fell off our eyes for a minute, but I think we willingly, willfully put them back on because we just want things to go back to whatever normal looks like, whatever normal is, and um, and that we hope, you know, that we are past it. We saw it and we can get past it. And, um, and I think that, well, my answer... Two minutes. I think that um, we see the realities of that and what we're seeing politically right now, as voting rights being stripped, as um, as you know, people's rights, women's rights are all being stripped. You know, just in real time. I think all of this you would think that we'd head in the opposite direction based upon what we'd experience, what we experienced in 2020. And it seems like we're going the wrong way. However, I'm not discouraged. And I think that that's the final say so. I think what we're experiencing right now is the immediate response, but I don't think it's the ultimate um, response. I think that we've mm-hmm. yet to see the results of what happened in 2020 as a result of George Floyd, as a result of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and many of those things, the convictions and all those things, the, that's not the result of what we're going to see nationally. I think that as as time goes on, um, that what our nation and our world will look like as a result uh, remains to be seen. I think it's still too early to determine what's going to mm-hmm. come from because on the flip side of it, we're always faced with what the, the what's happening in the nation and um, the George Floyd Police Act not passing, voting rights being attacked, women's rights being attacked. We see those things, the uh, the false narrative of CRT, critical race theory, theory being attacked uh, throughout the state legislatures, throughout the nation. And we see all those things and we think, okay, this is all that's happening. When really what's happening is in the grassroots level, that there are people who are working hand to hand within the communities who are strengthening residents, people, individuals within the community that we will see the results of today, maybe not till 10, 15, 20 years from now, but we will eventually see the fruit of it to come pretty soon. Um, It's my belief that 
too often. And so um, I, uh, I was I was once participating heavily with uh, one of the things that Dr. King was or his primary focus when he passed was the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, it's out of resurgence here the last uh, few years uh, with uh, Reverend, um, 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 goodness, Liz Theo Harris and um, my goodness, I can't think of his name right now. It'll come to me again, uh, just like William Barber, uh, with Reverend William Barber and Reverend Liz Theo Harris. And so they're leading it nationally right now. Um, and I was heavily involved uh, in it in its early stages. And I drew back because um, when I was trying to recruit people throughout the state of Kentucky to be a part of this, the, the issues, when people hear them, they're massive, right? Like we're talking about what needs to happen in our nation and in our, you know, it's it's just it's everything seems so huge that the average person is like, well, what can I do? What, you know, what power do I have? And so, in researching and studying and just looking more at um, the civil rights era, we see those those larger than life figures, Dr. King, and we see, um, you know, many of those figures throughout the nation. And like, God, these. These people were mountainous, great figures, right? Diane Nash and, you know, um, all, all of them, wonderful people. However, the work didn't get done because of them. It was the everyday average citizen who decided to, not for what they wanted to see happen in the U.S., but better yet, what they wanted to see in their black, what they wanted to see in their neighborhood, what they wanted to see in their own city. And because of the little brush fires that they sparked in their communities, it became an uncontrollable, immovable fire that lit and changed the entire nation. So I began to think like, if I'm gonna spend my time, what I would rather do, rather than working on a national level, not that I'm necessarily a national leader at all, but what I would rather do is I would rather um, do my part uh, and and help as best with this big elephant. I'd rather just help scoop out little pieces. And let's figure out how to, how to take it a bite at a time. And um, so that's what I've devoted my time to the last few years, just piece by piece and little sections so that that everybody can see their value and their purpose in helping this thing to take shape. And so if if you can't see yourself maybe, you know, traveling to DC or someplace else, maybe you can't even afford it. Well, what you can do is you can afford if you don't have a vehicle, you can afford a dollar to ride downtown. And um, or you can carpool with somebody to the state capitol. Like there's something that you can do in your neighborhood, something you can do within your family and around tables. And so I figure my role at this point, uh, both as a pastor and as a community leader, is to help people see the the value that they can contribute um, to their own specific neighborhood. That's awesome, and I think it's such a beautiful point about like working towards the beloved community within the context that you're in, because we can't necessarily tackle everything that's like hindering the beloved community, um, especially within like systemic issues or structural issues that there are people addressing those. And that's really important. And we should support that. But how can we even like be working alongside those efforts um, at the grassroots level or at the interpersonal level? So um, that's really beautiful. Thanks for sharing. Yeah. 
So, um, Martin, who is, who, you know, who's your friend, um, he shared with us about the church merger that you helped facilitate. Um, yeah, we would love to hear more about that. What inspired that intentional decision to kind of fuse those two faith communities and what I imagine that that process wasn't, um, straightforward or easy by any means, but, um, perhaps it was like, what did you learn in the process of that? Um, what was that like? Yeah. What inspired it? Gotcha. Gotcha. So, um, I, um, I planted a church in, um, in 2010, um, um, and it was a predominantly African-American church. Um, and around, was it 2013, uh, we relocated to another neighborhood. Um, we found ourselves doing more work around around this particular community which kind of like central to where many of our members lived um like most cities you know um most churches were you know louisville's a very transient community by nature but it's really indicative of our entire country at this point um so but our members were all kind of centered around this one neighborhood so we identified it and we moved there well um, I had a friend who had uh, planted a church. They launched exactly six months after we had, and it was a predominantly white church. And um, so, you know, we talked, we were good friends, like, hey, we're coming down and, um, you know, want to let you know, but also, man, let's figure out some ways so we can partner in ministry together. You know, we're stronger together. And, um, and so he, he actually tossed the idea of the merger then. Um, and, um, and, but he ended up leaving like three months later, like he, he took a job somewhere else and, um, and left. And, um, the other gentleman who took over, um, I didn't know as well, but we began to be good friends. And, um, so we just began hanging out, you know, proposed to him the same thing that I did the previous pastor. Let's, you know, let's, let's get out here, you know, combine resources, man. And, uh, there's no point if, um, if I'm going to have, um, for, you know, if I'm going to have an Easter egg hunt, um, on this day, you're going to have one, two days later, just nonsense. Let's pull our resources and let's just have a big Easter egg hunt. Like, you know, let's just do that. And so, uh, we actually began to do that. We coordinated our outreach calendars and, um, and many of them we did as, as a collective, as a unit. And so the initial idea actually came from the members, um, you know, they're like, listen, man, if we're going to keep doing this, what does it look like if we're just come together and, and, and be a church together? And so um, we didn't move on it initially, um, but um, the more that we began talking and getting to know each other, we just felt like that's the way that God was leading. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, so we started serious conversations in 2014 about, okay, like, what does this look like? And so we began unpacking a lot of information and reading. Now, at this time, it wasn't as tense, but we're still, you know, right on Mike Brown. um, And um, there have been some others, Trayvon Martin. um, And so it was very tense already, 2015. And we had Philando Castile. We had a number of things that happened. And um, and we noticed um, just the tension, the racial tension uh, that was taking place all around us. And so our conversation was, okay, if we're going to do this, then we got to recognize that we cannot um, bring both 
you know, this predominantly black church, predominantly white church together and not have racial righteousness and reconciliation a major part of the work. And so um, so we started, um, you know, doing everything we could, reading, connecting, having conversations, which then began to us bringing our leaders together to have some serious conversations around race, and then also starting to bring the members together to have conversations around race. So what we wanted to do is educate everybody on not only what we were going to do as a church merger, but also this is going to be a, a new focus for us as a church. And so really what we say is that we didn't merge um, because we knew that this was going to be so significant and so different from what each congregation initially started out as. We want to give people wanted to give people permission to bow out if they didn't feel called to it. And so, uh, so we literally had a Sunday where we funeralized both churches. Um, we had like a, we invited people who helped to launch them, and we had two services back to back, you know, for each of the, the service, the churches. And um, and we said, hey, listen, we understand what we're asking you to do is challenging. And, uh, and church is one of those places that you choose, um, not necessarily that you're forced or you're forced to go to work and all these other places. We don't want this to be something that burdens you. So if you don't want to move forward, it's okay. You are blessed to go do something else. Um, and so, um, so we, we put that out there and, um, and then we, we closed the doors, um, even though we could have, you know, launched and started having services immediately. We closed the doors, and for a few months, we just had internal conversations and tried to get to know each other. Um, we did, you know, a lot of conversations around tables, and um, our services essentially were workshops and talks around reconciliation, around uh, bias, and things of that nature, you know, of course, uh, rooted in scripture. And um, and then we launched it um, in um, what, the last Sunday of January in 2016 um, with the hopes of being a reconciling community um, that would um, that would ultimately be a lighthouse man for for our city and for um, people who are seeking to worship in a context in which heaven's going to eventually look like. Uh, and But we were we were serious about, uh, and they still are, even though I'm no longer there, still serious around, around the conversation of diversity, but also um, on making sure that there is equity amongst, um, amongst genders and that it's a completely inclusive neighborhood. So, um, you know, man, we, we launched at one point in time, I think we were um, probably... 30% LGBTQ um, in our uh, in our congregation. And so um, it became a safe and a protected space. And so we made sure that that was going to be a space that they didn't have to fear that we uh, intentionally put women in places of authority to make sure that people could see uh, men submit uh, to the authority of women. And so we, we really worked hard. They still work hard to, uh, to try to, um, to make that a focal point. Um, what we saw, at least one of the things that I think, um, I believe that it did help with is, of course, um, you know, seven, eight months later, we had this historic election, right? And um, for lack of a better word, historic. And, um, and the grief that it caused that permeated throughout the community, um, we became a place, man, where people could come for healing. Mm. 
and um, and people could have good conversations that um, that they could hear from either their African American brothers and sisters or white brothers and sisters uh, the pain of the moment, and um, and it. Um, yeah, it's still probably one of the most significant times of my life. Just uh, the conversations, having people. Martin was significant and essential in that. You know, some of the conversations uh, that he and I had in that period, I'll always cherish. And some other people whom for, you know, many of us were really grieving um, because 2016 really exposed something. Um, it became a place of healing for, for many people. So. Um, yeah, so church is still going. Church is called One Church. Um, so it's, it's a beautiful expression of God's kingdom. And um, yeah, man, and, and they're still doing really great work in our city. Wow. <laughs> Sounds like such a beautiful example of the beloved community being lived Absolutely. out in real time. Um, I have a quick follow up question to that and to something that you said earlier. Um, so, our audience is many are Christian, but not everyone, certainly. Um, but hopefully this is relevant for all. Um, but I'm thinking about what you've said about the beloved community in connection to the church and, um, you know, going back to the early church and how this is, you know, kind of in our DNA. And then, um, you mentioned in the process of combining faith communities that you, you gave the option to some who wanted to bow out to, you know, to go elsewhere. And that was fine. And you bless them, I guess. Yeah. I'm wondering about, um, those maybe particularly within the church who, you know, this concept of beloved community, it like, doesn't, it doesn't hit, it doesn't resonate. It doesn't, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just like, yeah. eh. Um, I don't know. How do you pastor those, individuals or groups um and because obviously you can't bully someone into like you know joining in on the beloved community vision so i guess yeah what comes to mind there yeah so um you know we when we gave people the option bless them to leave some some left immediately um and then some stayed a lot stayed um we launched um our first service, um, open service, I mean, it was probably, you know, for a church plant, this is significant, about 260 people in our first service. And um, and so, um, you know, and there was a lot of great energy. Uh, what I know is that um, sometimes people, we can be in love with the idea of a thing. It's kind of like, um, like marriage. Some people love the wedding, but they don't like the work of marriage. And, um, and so what we saw was people love the idea of it, uh, but the work of the beloved community was, uh, was fearful because it requires you, similar to marriage, it requires you to give a lot of yourself and you must submit a lot of your preferences in order to meet the needs of the community. That's what we see uh, in the book of Acts and Acts 2, right? We see them 
them submitting a lot of what they have. They brought their resources, they brought their time, those things, they submitted it for the sake of the community, not for themselves. And so um, so we started out with about 260, at least for about the, the, the first month or the first couple of months, we, you know, that's, that's kind of where we dwell, somewhere around that area. And um, by, by October of that year, we were about at, at about at 40. Mm. So we grew that thing down. I mean, it was it was exceptional growth, man. I'm telling you, it was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but you know, um, as depressing as it was, what we saw was really, you know, um, kind of what you're speaking to is that um, is that you know, once people really saw what this was required, what this was asking, is like, oh, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this. Like, I thought we were going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya and everything was going to be okay. Um, But it exposed a lot, you know, in people, Mm -hmm. not only, you know, some of their own biases and um, prejudices, but also, um, you know, the consumerism um, that many of us have adopted as Western Christians that, you know, I I show up and, um, you know, uh, you know, I show up, man, listen, I kind of need 60, 75 minutes of something and then I need to be let go home. And um, mm-hmm. and we're saying like, hey, you know, we're not that's not what we're doing here. Like what we're trying to figure out is how to intentionally and create to create something um, that would um, that would be a haven for all people. And, um, and many people just didn't want to surrender um, to that. Mm-hmm. And so we had to have essentially a weeding out so that the people who are supposed to be there um, would come. So yeah, we grew it down, but, but it grew back up. It grew back up just, just to let you know. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. I think that's, I love what you're saying about laying down your, down your preferences. Cause I think and understanding that sort of sacrificial love that yeah. is probably, that was, you know, modeled for us by Jesus. So how can we like, adopt that ourselves and live that out in the context of beloved community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not easy. You know, I, no, I appreciate you all. saying that. Like not it's not easy. <laughs> it not takes hard work. Yeah. 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 It took a toll um, on us. Uh, emotion. I didn't know. I'm pretty even kilter. Like I, I never, you know, I don't really have highs and lows. I'm pretty much this guy 24 <laughs> seven. I didn't know that I stressed until then. Um, and I, Mm-hmm. saw my body viscerally responded to the press. I saw it, it, I broke out in hives and had sleepless nights. Like it was, um, it took an, it took a toll on me in ways mm-hmm. that I didn't even know I was possible for me. I thought I could handle all things. And that was one of the times I was like, okay, I'm not as strong as I think I am. Like, you know, yeah. So what did, I guess, in light of that, what did you come to sort of like, depend on did you find a way to sort of or how did you manage that stress and what helped you through that um yeah so again not to sound hyper spiritual but prayer um learning to slow down um learning to truly lean on processing my emotions um I'll plug uh, another book that really helped me in that season, uh, Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, um, and taking some time, man, and going into the daily office, 
and really allowing um, God to speak to the depths of my soul, which I'd recognized I never had. Um, I was good at doing the work of looking and performing as a Christian. I was terrible at being and living as a Christian. And so um, so that uh, that kind of helped me uh, there just to, to grow up a little bit more emotionally and spiritually. So I guess just to close out, um, and then of course, anything you want to add is more than welcome. Um, but how do you see... How do you see yourself? How do you see yourself within your community moving forward towards this vision of beloved community? And um, in addition to that, how you've kind of already spoken to, you know, what what changes you're seeing, how the needle's already being moved. But I guess, how would you encourage um, us, but, you know, our listeners, um, us representing the listeners to join you in this work, to join in the vision of beloved community, if especially if it feels a bit daunting or you don't know where to start gotcha gotcha yeah so for me um here's the irony of the conversation and when martin reached out to me um i um so i took over this church and uh, this is my childhood church where i grew up so it's very dear to me and Mm. um and it had declined significantly over the years and so i took over um a little over years the first sunday of january 2021 so right in the middle of the pandemic um, you know, I, I take over as lead pastor there um, to help revitalize and help to, you know, bring a little bit of life back to the church, that congregation. Um, right in the middle of everything that we're experiencing. So there's, there's still there's still very much a, a lot going on in the city as a result of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, of course, here locally. And um when I showed up there, um, of course, before that, I was there for some months before taking over. Um, and these conversations were so prevalent in everything. In my mind then, I was thinking, man, what the community needs right now is the beloved community. And I started, I was holding on to it. And so I revisited, I reread some stuff and started taking notes. And so our our theme moving forward is we are New Horizon Baptist Church, a beloved community. Mm-hmm. We had just settled in on that before I spoke to Martin. And I'm like, okay, God, you want to talk about no a, an affirming call? Like, you know, I really believe that we are headed in the right direction just because of this conversation moving forward. And so... I feel like my role both there as pastor and even in serving uh, for a small, nonprofit small, we are nine people. We're really a small uh, nonprofit. My role there is to help to do my part um, to make that come into fruition. And so uh, my wife and I, we're talking um, now about what does it look like to begin um, to both train and develop. My wife, that's what she does. She trains and develops leaders, train and develop our leaders uh, to be those who are um, who are ambassadors of the beloved community, not just within the local church, but wherever they find themselves Monday through Saturday. And so, uh, so we, we have a, a 
a bunch of trainings and conversations moving forward uh, to help with that. And so I, I look at myself more as like a, like a coach more than a pastor. And, um, and I want to empower players for the kingdom to go and do their part, to play their role uh, wherever God has planted them so they can blossom well. And um, so just the, to answer that question, where do I see myself? That's that's what I see myself doing, empowering people and plugging in and helping to do my part so that they can see this as a possibility. Now, the way that I know how to do that, I mentioned earlier, it's in, you know, that old adage, you know, how do you eat an elephant? Well, one bite at a time. You know, I have the ability and the gift to help people to um, to see things um, and to break it down into smaller parts so that it's not as threatening, so that fear, anxiety doesn't get the best of us. Uh, because when we see things, oftentimes it's too massive. Uh, it paralyzes us. And so um, the average person needs to know that I can make a difference. Well, how can you make a difference? You don't have to worry about, you know, whatever massive deals that, the, you know, the average person can't do. You let that to somebody else. What you can do is you can have healthy conversations at work. Um, you can inform your family members. Um, you can redirect, uh, you know, your crazy uncle when he says, um, you know, irresponsible things across the dinner table. Um, you can, um, you know, there's a number of things that you can do when we understand what we're working towards, you can help people to look beyond whatever myths or stereotypes that we see uh, with the, you know, the thousands of homeless individuals, persons that we see at the ends of uh, expressway exits all around the country. You know, that, you know, there's more to them than whatever story of addiction and irresponsibility that we tell ourselves because we don't want to reach in our little change bank and give them uh, 50 cents or just a little bit of change. Like, there's something more there that we need to be able to see to see the value in humanity. And so yeah. my my role, what I see right now is that is helping people to see how they can make a difference where they are. And um, and we do that within uh, my job is uh, we 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 are often brought to the table uh, to engage the community. And the reason why is that we engage with people that most people will overlook. So the neighbors that people think won't help are often the ones that we partner with the most to do some of the greatest things that happen with the neighborhoods throughout the city. So. That's amazing. Wow. I'm just in awe of like everything that you've shared today and um, the stories that you've shared and um, learning about how you're working towards the beloved community there in Louisville and just pray that that will reverberate throughout the country and um, the state and, and other communities as well. And um, you give us such an amazing example to follow. So thank you. Oh, thank that. you guys for having me and allowing me to share. Wow, that was um, such an amazing conversation. And I'm just, I'm so grateful to have had that opportunity to talk with Jamel and learn from his example of, of fostering the beloved community where he's located there in Louisville. Yeah. Amazing. 100%. I, I feel like he is, you know, we had the privilege of hearing from Reverend Adam Russell Taylor who gave us, you know, some ideas and theories and then talking to Jamel 
Armstrong, it was like we were seeing them lived out um, and kind of like what beloved community might look like in practice. And so I, yeah, I, I thought one thing that keeps coming to mind as I reflect back on the episode is, well, so many things, but when he was talking about the table talks that, you know, he's been facilitating along others in his community, um, where, you know, essentially people gather around a table, um, diverse backgrounds and talk about, you know, various issues, um, incarceration, you know, things that might be divisive. And then they bring in a speaker, somebody who, you know, um, might educate and provide some context for that issue. And then they discuss, um, kind of like rooted in this idea that that's where connection happens is around the table. I've been thinking about that. And, um, also something that he got into at the end of the episode, like what, what do you think it requires for someone to want to be part of that, like to, for -hmm. someone to pursue, especially maybe if you don't have, if you're not touched by the issue personally, like what does it require for someone to want to sign up for something like that, to to go to a place where you're like, you know, it's going to be uncomfortable and you might be humbled a bit. Like what? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That's, That's such a good question. And I wonder that too, because I think obviously not everybody is going to want to, like we learned from Jamel, not everyone's going to want to partake in that um, journey or or put themselves in that uncomfortable position. And so I do think it, but I I think like it has to start somewhere, right? Like with someone. So whoever is interested, like, start there and then kind of go outward from that, I think. I mean, I don't know because I've never had to do something like what what he's done. But um yeah, I think that's such a good question to to consider. Like as we engage in peacemaking, not everyone's gonna want to part participate in that. And like right. there's not really much you can do except extend the invitation. Right. Um but the people who do want to be there, like focus on on those relationships and and building the community out from there. Um, yeah, I don't know. What yeah. do you think? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I agree. Um, I yeah, I definitely agree. I think that it is evident that like reconciliation, peace building, peacemaking requires work. And, um, you know, I think there, there has to be a willingness to work if you're going to find yourself in a space of reconciliation, whether that be attending a table talk or being part of like a church merger, merger, which, um, Jamel led like at the, yeah, he, I remember when he was talking about how um, when people realize, and this isn't to like shame or call out anyone, but when people realize that it wasn't going to be just, you know, holding hands um, and singing Kumbaya with the church merger, and it was actually going to be kind of difficult and uncomfortable. Like some are like, well, this is, this isn't what I signed up for. And so I think, um, yeah, I think it it definitely requires a willingness to 
work, which isn't necessarily appealing, you know, especially if you don't have to, if you're not like being faced with a conflict, Mm -hmm. you're like choosing to kind of enter and learn and then Mm -hmm. respond. It's like, yeah, who would sign up for that? You know, (laughs) (laughs) that's so true. Um, That's so true. And, but I, I think it's like within the context of like, Christianity or the church, like for those who are seeking to follow Jesus, I think that that really speaks to, okay, like, like what Jamel was talking about. Are you willing to lay down your preferences? Are you willing to pick up and carry your cross as it were? Like, are you willing to live out that sacrificial love that Jesus modeled for us and, and showed us and continues to show us? Right. Um, give to us, like, are you willing to like follow him into that place? And I think, yeah, I think that's a really important thing to bring up. Like what you're saying, it's like, I think for those who maybe carry the power or privilege within a particular conflict or division, don't really feel the effects of that conflict or division in the same way. Yeah. Um, like you're saying, like, well, this doesn't really affect me that much. Like I can still sort of just keep living my life and doing my thing because I don't feel the effects tangibly. Right. But I do wonder if like, for those of us who do carry that sort of power or privilege within a certain situation, like if we, if there's a greater like impetus for us to be willing to lay down our preferences Hmm. in order to like follow Jesus into that space of reconciliation. Right. Uh, that's just something, yeah, that I've, I've been reflecting on. No, I think you're, you're spot on with it being authentic to who we are and who we say we want to be like, you know, I mean, that is central to who Jesus is, who Jesus is. And um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, definitely definitely agree with you. I think about, um, Philippians two, you know, when, um, Paul writes like that Jesus, I'm going to like not quote it correctly, but basically Jesus who was equal to God made himself nothing, you know, and like taking on, um, yes. Yeah. Becoming obedient and like, yeah, I, I just think that that is the picture of, of what we're trying to do and who we're trying to be and like wielding, laying down our power and like, you know, or, or wielding it to like lift up those who are powerless, um, in certain conflicts. And yeah, I mean, Mm -hmm. when Jamel had brought up that experience, I think he was in, in his, in childhood of, Mm -hmm. um, the cop, you know, essentially Mm -hmm. threatening him. And he was like, you know, we can only ignore stories like that for so long until it's like in our face. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, with Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and just the events of 2020, obviously our country kind of faced this like racial reckoning moment and then it could no longer be anno- be ignored. And so... I don't know. I guess I'm just connecting that to the idea of like, it is, yeah, we have to, if we're on the the side of power in a, in a conflict or in a particular issue, like it, 
it takes us laying that down in order to hear those stories. And it shouldn't take like this, these crazy events that get attention, you know, for us to then start. Yeah. Spotlighting or I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and I, like, I love what you were saying earlier about like choosing to step into that place, which I think like if we're following Jesus, like, it's almost like, how could we not do that, you know? And then, but it does take humility and it does take a certain sacrificial love to do that. But I think that's like what we're called to do. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so, and I, I think it's, you know, like everything that Jamel shared about his experiences growing up in America and like, um, you know, when we ask the question of like, what is more valuable to God? Like, is it people? Is it human life right. that bears the image of God? Or is it like, you know, these, pro- like he was talking about like property versus like the value of human life and things yeah. like that. And I think we have to ask the question of ourselves, like, who does God value? Like, who is important to God? And it's everyone, you know? And so mm-hmm. how do we um, live that out? Hmm. Yeah, that's that is a really, really good point. I um yeah, yeah, I think like yeah, I, I love that perspective of of what does God value in this particular context. I think we can have we can feel a certain tie or feel like we owe loyalty to an idea or, um, thinking about Louisville specifically and, but not even, I mean, here as well, the stories that we tell about the poor and, um, those who are unhoused, you know, which he also brought up of like, well, you know, they, they got themselves there. Like we can be so loyal to those ideas. I feel like more than we can't, more than we are to God and to like what, yeah, what what our faith says about the situation, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great sure. point. And I, yeah, and I feel like it just asking those questions, I think, really helps because it it's easy to get caught up in <laughs> what's happening around us and like the ideas people are sharing and like groups of people that we identify with. But like when we can pause and say, okay, what does God care about in this situation? Right. Like, yeah, who does He value and um, what's his, his perspective or his, um, heart that we know of towards, um, yeah, towards this group of people or towards like this conflict or whatever may be going on. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like it was, it was just such a great encouragement and reminder and like kick for me to, to recall or just to acknowledge the fact that like, you know, the church should be the primary place where we see beloved community lived out. And so, I mean, yeah, that's just something to reflect on and then hopefully follow in practice of like, how do we do that? But um, Mm -hmm. yeah, just, man, so many things from this episode. So good. I know. Oh, so amazing. And Maybe we can go visit him someday in his church. That would be awesome. That would be so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So grateful for him. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And for more info about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peacebuilding work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org. Thanks, everyone.